I want to talk for a few moments about impossibilities. I suspect if you and I had spoken on January 1st and I asked you what you thought 2020 would bring, there's no way you would have considered what's happening now as being remotely possible. If I had said in 2020 we'll see a global pandemic, a major stock market devaluation, a probable recession in our country and around the world, the disappearance of sports at every level from little ones on through college and into the professionals, almost no air travel, countries closing their borders, no major music concerts, the emptying of bars and restaurants, the shutdown of parks and our beaches, the emptying of schools and things like quarantines and shelter-in-place orders and social distancing and church buildings empty except for being online like this. And all of these things happening in just a matter of a few days, just a few weeks, you would have probably said, that's impossible. And yet here we are. Here we are. And so I want you to, to, to hold that word impossible. We'll come back to it in just a bit. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us today and joining Holy Cross for the first time via this online format, I want to tell you that we are currently uh, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're going deeply into Luke this year. In fact, it's our goal to see Jesus clearly in 2020. And so we've chosen Luke's narrative of Jesus because of Luke's stated purpose for writing that we might have certainty with regard to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who among us couldn't use some certainty in these uncertain times? We're going to look at things like life, death, resurrection after life, and what we can really count on. So we'll pick up now from where we left off last week. We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. You heard me read a few moments ago from verses 27 through 36. Again, you can look at your Bibles or your download or at the feature there if you're using that live stream. Now let me give you the context. Jesus has been doing miraculous things, healings, miracles, deliverance ministry. His message and his activities are all focused on himself, not in some egotistical way, but it's focused on his identity as the Savior, as the Lord, the Messiah, and as God among us. And at this point, the religious types have said, this is impossible. Though they've seen the miracles, though they've heard the words, they say it's impossible that you could be who we believe you're saying you are. And they have determined from this point on that they must kill him. And we're in the midst of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's version is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. That's P-L-A-I-N, not Sermon on the Airplane. Sermon on the Plain. It's a level place on the side of the mountain. There are thousands of people who are present. Some are just there for the show. Others want to be his disciples. They want to be his followers. And he's just told us that only desperate people, it is only the desperate who will want and receive him and receive the things of God. And now he's going to unveil the cornerstone of his master plan for doing life God's way. 
It's the centerpiece of his radical value system. It's the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. And it is an unavoidable command that he gives to everyone who wants to follow him. And yes, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to do it on our own. Let's go to the text of Scripture, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And that's when everybody's heads explode in the crowd. And they say, say what? Now, when Jesus is speaking about love here, he's not talking about the world's kind of love. He's not talking about a romantic, erotic kind of love. He's not even talking about that kind of filial, brotherly love. He's not even talking about the kind of love that a parent might have for their child. He's talking about God's kind of love. It's a love that seeks out the best for the other, no matter what the cost. And in Jesus' words, it's even for enemies. It's a love that seeks out the best even for its enemies. And we're going to see Jesus model this love at his execution in just a few weeks. As he fulfills the purpose for which he has come to the earth to offer his life as a ransom for sin, to give his life in sacrifice for sinners. We'll see it in everything he does, this kind of God love. As the soldiers mock him and sneer and spit upon him, as they whip him and scourge him, as the crowds they chant mercilessly for his death. We'll see it with each blow he endures. We'll see it as his friends abandon him and betray him. And we'll see it as he dies upon that cross, not with words of cursing on his lips, but with words of forgiveness. He doesn't just talk about love. He does love. Now, before anybody in the crowd with Jesus can complain, about the impossibility of loving your enemies, he rattles off for us several descriptions of what loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you looks like. Now, for time's sake, I will summarize them. He says, bless those who curse you. Most of us just want to curse back. Pray for those who mistreat you. Most of us want justice. Respond to aggression with gentleness. Most of us want to hit back. Be generous to those who are selfish. Most of us want to cut others off. And then lastly, as a kind of baseline, treat others the same way you want to be treated. Now that last one isn't entirely new. In fact, it's called the Golden Rule, and you can find it in the writings of, of all sorts of people, Confucius, Aristotle, Plato, it's in the midst of every major religion. They all have some form of the golden rule. Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Sikhism, Buddhism. The thing about that last one, treat others as you want to be treated, there's nothing unusual about it. it it's just the baseline for our understanding of what love is because everyone does this. Everyone does this kind of love. That's why Jesus says in verses 32 through 34, even sinners do this. Even sinners are good to other sinners. Even sinners, those who actively resist God in their thinking, in their affections, in their actions, even sinners love other sinners. Because after all, that's the way the world thinks. It's a give-to-gain kind of mentality. 
It's really natural to do things for others uh, with the expectation that we might get something in return. Uh, so we, in our lives, we think, say things like, well, I'll help you now, but you know, I'd like for you to help me later on. And many of us feel obligated to do that very thing. Sometimes parents will say, you know, we gave you life and we give you a roof over your head. The least you could do is help us out around the house. I gotta confess, uh, I think I said that this week. And to my kids who are watching, I repent. We might say it in the workplace, I'll put in my dues, right? I'll put in my time and they'll owe me later. Or how about the young woman who was in my office some years ago who, who said to me that she had given herself away physically to her boyfriend in hopes that he would just love her in return. Jesus is bringing a corrective to this natural kind of way of loving, this hoping to get love in return kind of love. And that's why he says, don't love for what you can get out of it. No, instead, love like God. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And you might say that's impossible, and Jesus says, yeah, but that's the distinguishing mark of what makes people Christian. It's what makes us God's sons and daughters. And why is that? Well, we heard it in Romans 5. It's because God loves his enemies. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says it this way in verse 35 of our reading, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Is it impossible? Yes and no. For the natural person trying to do it on their own, it is completely impossible. In fact, the natural person would never even think of doing this sort of thing. It would even cross their mind. Until you are desperately needing God, you will never have His way, think His way, know His way. It wouldn't even cross your mind. Until you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing your desperation, knowing your need of forgiveness, and receiving that forgiveness by faith. Until His Holy Spirit comes into your life, this kind of love is impossible, and it makes no sense. So no, a natural person can't do this. But we need to also understand that this kind of love can be impossible for the careless, the careless Christian, the person who is immature, what the Bible might call fleshly, operating according to the lower self, the false self. No, the only person who can operate in this kind of love is the spirit-filled Christian. Now, that doesn't mean a person necessarily having some sort of emotional response. It's actually the person who is daily growing to know Jesus, who is daily being filled with the Holy Spirit as, as we spend time with Him in the Scriptures and as that Word of God renews our minds and changes our thinking, as our hearts are made tender by His Spirit, as we grow to know His voice as we understand His ways through worship and through prayer, through spiritual practices, often things like fasting and going without, those are the kind of things that kill the flesh and strengthen the inner person so that we might grow into maturity. It's only the person who is developing intimacy with Jesus, 
who will love like Jesus loves. Because it takes his supernatural empowerment to do this. Question is, why does he ask us to do this? Why does he want this kind of response? I would offer two things. First, it's because it shows the reality of God to an unbelieving world. It doesn't make sense. And in the not making sense, they might just see him. And it's because our response of love may actually change the heart of an enemy and make them receptive to God. In the book of The Grace of Giving, Stephen Olford tells about a pastor by the name of Peter Miller. He was a contemporary and a friend of General George Washington. He lived in a small town in Pennsylvania. He was a pastor of a church there, and there was an aggressively bad man in that town who had it out for Pastor Miller. The man's name was Michael Whitman, and Michael Whitman was cruel to this man. He was cruel. He sought to humiliate him publicly. He sought to upend this pastor's faith. But one day, Michael Whitman was found to be in league uh, with the British. This was before we were friends. He was arrested for treason. He was sentenced to die. And pastor Miller traveled 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of this man. General Washington was overseeing the trial, and he said to Pastor Miller, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. I'm sorry. Pastor Miller said, my friend? Well, he's not my friend. He's my bitterest enemy. And Washington was confused. He said, you walked 70 miles for an enemy? And Washington paused, and he thought about it for a while. And he said, I will grant you the pardon. Pastor Miller took Michael Whitman back home, no longer an enemy, but a friend. And before very long, he was soon a brother in Christ. It was his love for his enemy that changed his enemy. So let's apply this text. And Jonathan did that so brilliantly with the help of Sammy. I invite you this morning to see the natural condition of your heart. You recognize that the kind of love that I'm talking about is impossible for you. It wouldn't have ever even crossed your mind. It means that you need to repent. It's an invitation that God gives to all who recognize their desperate condition before him. I'm inviting you to turn your heart to God and to ask forgiveness. To ask him to give you a new kind of heart, a heart like his heart. A heart like the heart of Jesus. Ask God to make you a son or a daughter by adoption through grace as you simply put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And if you already belong to him, if you're part of the family of God through faith in Christ, resolve today, and particularly in the midst of this crisis, to love like he loves. Ask him to daily give you power to supernaturally love others. And then look for the enemies that cross your path. And then love them. Love them in the grocery store. I'll tell you what, I had a lady just about mow me down yesterday with her cart because I paused. And she said, excuse me. And my first impulse was to say, bless your heart. 
which those in the South know is not really a blessing at all, but something in me checked. And I heard the Spirit say, pray for her. She's, she's afraid. And so I did. And I just blessed her. And I said that as she passed by, bless you, ma'am. I hope you have a good day. In traffic, when someone curses, you don't curse back. With your siblings, your friends, your parents. And here's another thing. When you're on social media, resist the temptation to lash back. Before you react, pray, come Holy Spirit. And don't respond in kind. Instead, respond in kindness. Let's pray. O oh Lord, have mercy upon us. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts and a work in our families. Lord, even now, would you bring new life? Would you bring new life to those who know their desperate need for a heart like yours? And would you forgive and restore us? And would you strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit? That we might love our enemies. That we might do good even to those who hate us. And that we might show. We might show that we are sons and daughters of God. We pray this, Lord, for your glory and in the name of your Son, Jesus.